Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is January 30th, 2015. This is broadcast number 75. And it's hard to believe I was just commenting to our guest today, who I will introduce in a, in a few minutes. Uh, I was just reflecting on the reality that we've done 75 of these programs. And so I hope the listeners have been benefit, have benefited from these discussions and they've been edifying and even instructive. I know they have been for me. I oftentimes think... I'm not really a ga- the host. I'm more of a listener and a learner. And uh, so I've always appreciated the discussions, even though I'm on this side of the microphone. But again, this is broadcast number 75. This is the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And if you want to know more information about the seminary, you can do so by simply going to our website, gpts.edu. And of course, the podcast has a website as well. It is Confessing Our Hope. Dot com. There you'll get all the past broadcasts, uh, find out how to subscribe to it through iTunes and whatever else you use, and also about what is coming up on the program. Now, normally this time of the year, and as those who listen faithfully to this program know, that about this time every year, the seminary is beginning to build up to our annual Spring Theology Conference. It's something that's been going on for a long time. I don't know the number, how many conferences they've done, but it's it's significant. And every year in March, uh, we hold, host a Spring Theology Conference here in the beautiful city of Greenville, South Carolina. And this year, the topic of the conference is on the law of God. It's a subject that needs to be discussed more and more in today's world and today's climate. And we have a number of speakers coming uh, to be on the conference. Dr. Joseph Piper, of course, the president of the seminary, will be speaking on two different occasions. And we have other men, Dr. Ian Hamilton, a, a prolific and, and godly pastor and speaker, will be here to speak on what the law could not do from Romans chapter 8. Dr. Curdo, a professor here at the seminary, will be speaking on No Gospel Without the Law, a very intriguing title. And other men, Dr. Dyer, Dr. Richard Barcelos, and Dr. Mark Jones, and, and so forth, will be coming to speak at the conference, which is held here in Greenville, South Carolina, in March, um, March, <laughs> looking for the dates, bear with me here, you think I would know these things off the top of my head, and I don't, because I'm not paying close enough attention, March 10th through the 12th of this year. So it's coming up very quickly, it'll be on top of us before we know it. And if you want to find out more information about the conference, you can go to our website again, gpts.edu. There the information for the conference is right there on the main page, and you can click on the link and and, and register and find out more information, housing and, and so forth. So take advantage of these opportunities. It's, a, it's not an expensive conference by the standards of today. And uh, so take advantage of that. It's going to be an outstanding um, uh, conference, great fellowship, great food, great time to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And as always, the evening conferences, Tuesday night and Wednesday night, are free and open to the public. So if you happen to live in the Greenville area and just want to come to those, you can do that, no charge. Just show up, come, and be uh, edified by what is discussed. You can also email us at info at gpts.edu for information or request literature to be sent to you about the conference. So take advantage of it as you are able. Now, as I was looking at the brochure and what prompted this discussion today, uh, this time every year we tend to sit down with the conference speakers and talk about their lecture they're going to do at the conference in brief. We're not asking our guests to give us their conference lecture on the podcast because then you won't come and listen to them in person, which is what we really want you to do. 
But we sit down with them and we talk in brief about the things that they're going to be discussing at the conference. Kind of the whet your appetite. It's kind of an appetizer. And if you want the full meal, um, by all means, come to the conference. But as I was looking through the lineup this year, which is, uh, as I've already said, and I'm not going to restate, as I was reading the different topics, I was pretty familiar with most of them. And I got to the one here that we're going to talk about today, and, and I read it and I said, well, Robert Rollick in the Covenant of Works. And I said, well, I know about the Covenant of Works, but I've never heard of Robert Rollick. Who's he? You know, who I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. I could spell his name, but that was about it. So we're going to be talking with um, Mr. Breno Macedo. He's a graduate of Greenville Seminary. He graduated in 2011, and he, in fact, he had he worked on staff here prior to me coming on. So I'm doing his job that he did when he was here. So there's sort of a connection there. He also graduated from Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary with his THM in 2012. So he's going to talk with us and inform us, hopefully, and we're all going to learn today more about who Robert Rollick is, his influence, why we should even consider this man to begin with. And that's his conference lecture. But this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about him, kind of what your appetite to this man. So, Breno, it's good to have you on to talk about this man, I admit to you, as I even said off air, I, I read everybody else I, I kind of got, but I, I said, Robert Rollick. Who, who's Robert Rollick? Why don't you tell us, who, who is this guy? Well, Bill, thank you for, thank you for having me. And yeah. Yes, uh, uh, your question was exactly the question I asked uh, sitting uh, with uh, Dr. Nick Wilburn in, in a coffee shop when he suggested me to do uh, my THM thesis on Robert Rollick. Yeah. Uh, it was recently, I believe it was by that year, that uh, RHB had republished his selected works with a very fine introduction written by Andrew Woosay. Very, very nice, uh, very, very well written. Good summary of all, all of, uh, of Rollock's life, Rollock's role, Rollock's works as well. Um, and e- easiest to read than uh, Charteris on little biography uh, that he himself wrote about Rollock and is included in the uh, in the selected works. So yes, as I was sitting across the table with Dr. Wilburn, uh, he suggested to me, why don't you write something on Rollock? And I said, Robert who? Yeah, Robert Rollock? Oh, so who? you had the same reaction I did. I did. I oh, did. good. I don't feel so bad. No, please don't. That's good. <laughs> and all the listeners, now they, they're, they're, uh, who's that guy? So you're in good company. Well, at least half the company. Yeah, <laughs> and it it, it 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 is interesting because the same thing happened with uh, several other great men of this specific era, mm. this specific time, sixteenth, mm-hmm. seventeenth century, that we know really nothing about, like um, Musculus or uh, uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli. These are great men that really really don't study, maybe because we don't have the time, but certainly because they don't have significance, because they they certainly do. So who's Rollock, who, and uh, and why why should we care about him? Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, Rollock was a great scholar, and second, I would certainly uh, it's important to mention that he was a great pastor. I think this this beautiful mixture in uh, in Scottish tradition of theology uh, should should in itself raise our awareness of uh, of why should we study about Rollock and why should we, should why should we care about what he wrote. Um, so as as very young, he uh, he studied you know in a in Buchanan's Grammar School, uh, early uh, he he was born in 1555 approximately, and he lived through uh, 1599, and uh, he he did very well in grammar school, got a lot of great recommendations and recognition by Buchanan, and was sent to Saint Salvatore's College, uh, and he studied there from uh, 74 1574 to 1580, and during this time he finished the program he uh, he. 
finished with a, the Master of Arts. And right after finishing, he was invited to teach at St. Andrews. I mean, that's no small achievement for uh, for anyone living at the uh, at the second half of the 16th century. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and just three years later, so so he began teaching at St. Andrews in 1580, and he's recognition or the recognition people had of him as a master, as a tutor, as a professor was so big that uh, Edinburgh's town hall created the town college and invited him in 1583 to be the sole regent of uh, Edinburgh's town college, which later would become Edinburgh's University. So they so they did this just because he was coming. Exactly. That's he, fantastic. He was like this great guy that everybody acknowledged as a, an amazing instructor. He and there you go. Now now we're gonna uh, talk very briefly of, of another man that's very very well. Uh, that's uh, actually it's hardly known. Andrew Melview, mm-hmm. co-worker of John Knox and the Great Reformation of uh, of Scotland, and um, and if you take a look at uh, at uh, I think it was Binner of Truth, if I'm not mistaken, that, that published both. It's a very small uh, biography uh, on John Knox, but when you go to Malview's biography, it's like two volumes. Mm-hmm. But nobody knows about him, and Malview was the great guy, a great man in, in Scottish tradition that revolutionized the Scottish educational system, bringing Aristotelianism, bringing Ramism. Uh, or Ramis dialectics into the educational system, and such changes greatly influenced the thinking of the next generation of Scottish theologians. Rollock, in this place, uh, uh, his idea was to push forward to keep on uh, Andrew Melville's idea of the educational reform of Scotland. Mm. And so, as he come to St Andrews as the very first principal, and the man who is going to begin to educate a whole new generation. Of uh, of ministers, uh, yeah. This this is a this is an amazing uh, character in church history that that we should be aware of. Now you say he labored in Scotland. So was was he Scottish? Yes, definitely he so was a Scottish. Born, born in Scotland, but, raised. What was his background theologically? Well, uh, again, Church of Scotland background, and uh, not not a rich guy, uh, not a rich man. Uh, on the contrary, uh, very humble beginnings, humble parents. Um, and uh, and as we as we mentioned already, he was early sent to a grammar school run by Thomas Buchanan, and and again from from this humble beginnings, you have this man um, working his way up mm. to to be the first principal of Edinburgh's university. That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned RHB, and those who listen to this program know uh, when we say RHB or when I say RHB, we're talking about Reformation Heritage books. That's the um, uh, well, the bookstore, that's not the right word. The publishing arm, I think, of Puritan Seminary, but I think they're affiliated in some official capacity. I could be wrong about that. But regardless, you know who they are, and they're on the web. And it's what I love about RHB is they tend to take these, what we would call, uh, not disrespectfully, these obscure men, such as Robert Rollick, and they publish them. They republish their material and their works and get them in the hands of people mm. because they've been forgotten for some unknown you know, some unknown reason, for some who knows what the reasons are. They've been forgotten. And so I guess that really leads me to the next question for you, Breno, is, is 
Why why would this man have been forgotten with his heavy Presbyterian influence in Scotland? Obviously, they went to great lengths to bring him there. They built this this town hall, and he was the first principal of the school. Obviously, had a great deal of impact in the generations that followed. Why have we forgotten this man? It, it, it's a very very important question, and, and just just as a means to 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 make the question even more interesting, let me just give you a brief description of of what Rollock was regarded in the town, yep. both as a professor and a pastor. Good. The first group of students, the the first uh, uh, grads that came out of uh, of Rollock's uh, guidance was a was a, two, a a class of forty eight men. Uh, in 1586, they received their degree, and uh, and part of the ceremony actually was yeah. signing the King's Confession of 1581, and all the graduates signed that particular confession. It's interesting. That, that's an interesting fact because in the text of the King's Confession, uh, there are there are specific covenantal expressions that uh, that bring the whole ideal of the covenant already pretty much alive. Uh, for Rollock and his contemporaries. And as a professor, you, you're talking about not only a knowledgeable man, but a very, a very sensitive and engaging man who, who got involved with his students. You know, actually, this is one of the great things about, about Greenville Seminary that I always, I always share with people when they ask me about, is, is the unique involvement with the professors that one can have coming here. It, it's really unique, I believe. Um, and the same kind of relationship, you know, uh, you can you can experience here, like a, a professor asking or inviting you to have a coffee with him and having a conversation, asking how's your life, how's your academic life, how's your family life. That's the same exactly relationship that Rollock developed with, with his really? students. That's great. Uh, he used to take them uh, uh, to open air and teach them in open air. Mm. And as and as he is doing that, he's stirring up all kind all kinds of questions from his students. And at the same time, creating, developing this straight relationship to the point that the students consider them as their father. Not only the students, but then let, let me just speak briefly about him as a pastor. As he pastored um, uh, in Scotland, um, I believe that that the remark of the people at his death is is really it's really a, a, the best description of his whole ministry. Mm. Uh, the same impression that the students had was the impression of the congregation. They would say, in 1599, when this man was being buried, we lost our father. Look, oh, wow. I don't know. I, I, I myself, I have never said anything close to that about a pastor. Hmm. But those families uh, that used to be shepherded by him and sit under his um, his pulpit, uh, a powerful pulpit, by the way, as described by other church historians, uh, they said that. Now, why this great teacher, this uh, a great scholar and wonderful pastor was forgotten? Well, the easy answer would be, I don't know. Um, but I, I have I have a hint, I have a hunch okay. that maybe maybe that would be the case. And and um, of course, this is open to discussion and open to to research. But one thing is clear: um, for a man that was serving a Presbyterian church, Rollock had a lot of sympathy with the crown and with Episcopalism. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was really, I believe, was posthumous um, by the end. Um, it was in the first half of the 17th century that he worked, called Episcopal Government Instituted by Christ 
and confirmed by Scripture and Reason was published in London, hmm. 1641. So it seems to me that uh, that Rollock was was not a full heart Presbyterian per se, as as certainly other Scottish or the majority of the Scottish. Uh, theologians would be. And one specific situation got him in trouble. And, uh, and oh, good. Controversy. Yeah, controversy. We all love controversy. <laughs> well, in 1597, he was chosen, as he had been before, as moderator of the church's assembly that was taking place at Dundee. And uh, and what what's the big thing about this, this, this assembly is that uh, uh, they were discussing some kind of of, uh, of intrusion by King James on the church. And the thing is that uh, in, this, in this whole circumstance, and as a moderator, um, Rollock sided with the king's party and mm. with the king's delegate. Mm-hmm. And that caused a lot of this, a lot of, that, that stirred up a lot of unpleased hearts yeah. against him. Mm-hmm. So, for example... You have like a, you have like a man like Chambers that describes Rollock in, in, in kind of a bitter and unkind words. This is what he says. He says, Mr. Rollock's simplicity of character generated into, or rather originally possessed a natural imbecility, not at all uncommon in minds of this description, which disqualified him from acting a consistent or a profitable part in the conduct of the public affairs of the church, which at this period were of paramount importance. Hmm. So, uh, a great man, great scholar, great pastor, but because of of ecclesiology, because of church polity, it seems that he fell on the discredit of his contemporaries. And therefore, uh, the great works he wrote, amazing commentaries, uh, acclaimed by Beza, for example, his commentary on Romans has a brief introduction by Beza, really? and, and Beza uh, really, really appreciated the work he did there. Um, yeah, he was he was wow. simply neglected and and forgotten. I think it's interesting too, as we're talking about his life and why he was forgotten, perhaps um, among the the average person like me. Um, is that these guys, when they did their work, you know, whether they were principals at a school in Scotland, which was the, you know, the bastion of Presbyterian uh, theology at the, in the time, or whether they were engaged in church polity issues with the crown, you know, the king, King James, and, and, and all those issues that they were doing their theology within a context, an historical context. And and I think that's a great reminder to us that that these men that we love, that we know about, like the Mantons and the Watsons and the Calvins and the Bezas, that they were doing their theology in a context, a historical context. And and there's a lot of pressure, especially in that period. Now, I was going to ask, is that the King King James? Yeah. The one that then eventually brought what we have as the authorized version, King James Version? That's the same guy. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, that, okay. that is that is correct. Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot. And one other question, just in his in his that you brought up, and I and it was just popped into my head as you were talking, because of his his location there in Scotland, mm. um, and the connection that Scotland obviously had to the what would eventually come as out of the Westminster Assembly, fifty uh, some odd years after he died. 
do you how much influence did you discover maybe in your research or study did he have on future people that maybe have attended or had influence on the Westminster Assembly? That's you, a wonderful question. That's a wonderful. And let me just go back on the uh, on the the King James responsible for the the Jane, King James translation. Sure, sure. Well, the King uh, just thinking right now uh, at the top of my head, the King James translation dates from 1611. 11. Right. Yeah, we are we are talking about uh, 1590s. So. So this is this King James the first? I think that might be King James. My history is um, not very. Yeah, my, yeah, and right here I'm, I'm not really being helpful. Uh, but, but that's but, okay. That's okay. They can, people can look that up. But, yes. Um, but it's just. But the important thing I think is to realize that what was going on, you know, in 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 their culture and in, in their what was driving things when these guys were doing their theology when they were doing their work, they weren't doing. They weren't operating in a vacuum. That's true. There was a lot of pressure, so you know they were men with clay feet. We always try to remember that these aren't they, these aren't sinless people, and they may have made mistakes, but they were operating in a climate that is it, it, is somewhat foreign to us in a lot of ways, yeah. and, and familiar in others. So yeah. just keep that in mind. I threw that in there just for yeah, that, that's absolutely very important for Scotland it's, it, itself. It's important to remember that there always there was always a tension between uh, the church and the crown, right? With always the crown trying uh, uh, to to dominate and to rule the church, and the very strong conviction yep. uh, founded, you know, by Knox and Melville, that church and state are separate institutions, and uh, who runs the church is uh, are the officers that Christ Himself raised to run the church. Yep. So just just having this on the background, when when Rollock decides to side with the king, mm-hmm. yeah, that that's that. Especially and, as a Scottish guy. Exactly. That would rise all kinds of opposition and uh, insatisfaction, as as we just read, it certainly did. That's very interesting. Now, the the, the now the the church in England was that heavy Anglican at this point. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So the, herein lies the problem. You know, Presbyterian and Anglican conflict. Uh, not to mention the governmental issues and cultural issues between Scottish and Scotland, uh, Scotland and London right. or England. Right. Um, and you're right. There was this heavy dominance, at, you know, in and many spheres of of reality. So, um, I want to come back to that original statement I made. Did you did you in your research, just in the historical context, did you discover anybody that was heavily influenced by his work in Scotland that was then part uh, that was then party to the assembly Wonderful. much later on? Yeah, uh, th- th- this is a very very important question. I we in terms of of uh, of literary. Um, Evidence. I, did, I didn't really work that much, mm-hmm. but this is what I can say to you. Uh, when it comes to the Westminster Confession and to the form that covenant theology took at yep. the assembly in the 1640s, uh, we are talking about specific language and specific sentences that sound like exactly what Rollock was producing at the, at the second half of the 16th century. Yep. So in other words, the Westminster Assembly with the Scottish delegates and, uh, and of course, the, the Scottish delegates... Uh, didn't even had had the right to vote. Um, uh, there were like consultants, something like that, and uh, but and, and all the other other theologians that were part of the Westminster Assembly already had their 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 covenant theology pr- pretty well uh, uh, put together. The whole idea is that these men are not innovating; they're not creating anything. Yep. So what they are saying. So as you go through through the whole chapter of of God's covenant of man, yep. um, you are going to read there things that it sound ipsilitaries, uh, what Rollock wrote in in the second half of the 16th uh, of the 16th century. So so really what we see is that like Usher, 
like Bishop Ursher. Yep. A relic is this is this precursor of uh, of what would become the official covenant theology of Great Britain and 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 of course of the reformed world that adopts the the, the Westminster standards as their standards. Yeah, the listeners may uh, be more familiar with. Um the Protestant Reformation, you know, the precursors of the, you know, this is what we're talking about, you know, the Rollick and his, and his, and, and the men that he ran, the circles that he ran during this period, as I'm understanding things, really laid the groundwork for what Westminster eventually did right. in some of these areas. We're going to get to a couple of them now in a few seconds, but it might be helpful to realize it's it's similar to what like John Huss did for Luther. Um, you know, though Luther wasn't a Hussite, even though he was accused of that. Huss, Huss's innovations, as it were, his his development and treatments of various things, Luther adopted, and so much so that people accused him of being Hussite, <laughs> and um, and built on, um, and and that's something that's happened all the way through church history, as we know. We we we're building on the, the shoulders of other men who have done a lot of labor and work in various areas. One of them is the subject of your paper that you'll be doing at the conference mm-hmm. on the covenant of works. And so I guess this might be a good time to turn to, I mean, we've dealt with his history. We've dealt with some of his influence and, and how he's, how he impacted even years after his death, how it impacted the cult, the church's understanding of various things. What were some of the works that he was most known for? Maybe focus on one or two of those. Yeah. Well, again, uh, Rollick was really a prolific writer. So from 1590 to 1634, at least 40 of his words of his works were printed um, and they were printed in Edinburgh, Geneva, Heidelberg, mm. Herborn. It is really an amazing uh, achievement for for a theologian and also in Germany. Uh, so you, you you have everybody in the reformed community both uh, in in the in the island or in the inland uh, drinking from what Rollock uh, wrote. So for example, he wrote several commentaries on different Pauline letters, like uh, uh, Romans, which is the most known, uh, was printed in 1594. Uh, it's still, most of these works are still in Latin, um, so they are they're not really uh, uh, open literature for for anyone. Which is a plug for seminary, uh, just if you're thinking about going to seminary, we teach Latin here. Yep. A lot of seminaries, just, they don't do that anymore, we do. Just an FYI. Sorry, <laughs> gotta get the gotta get those plugs in it's, when I can. It's right. It's right. It, it is important to do it because it, it is absolutely necessary. Um, and 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 for me that I, I'm coming from a Latin background, I never really realized how Portuguese would help me out going through right. the works without really having a deep knowledge of Latin. Yep. So I really uh, I had to study a little bit of Latin to to do the translations sure. I did, but overall, sometimes I was really like sentences and sometimes paragraphs. Just because of of the relation, without really that deep knowledge. So you have Romans being published in 1594. You had um, uh, his commentary on First and Second Thessalonians printed in 1598. You have his commentary on Galatians printed in 1602. You have the commentary on Colossians printed in 1603. So you have you have all these great all these great works, and and probably the one of the most important commentaries you wrote that a commentator actually a, a scholar I can't remember the name right now but this is exactly what he said about Rollock's commentary on the on the gospel of John he said the gospel uh, uh, Rollock's commentary on the gospel of John is still a gem that remains to be unburied mm. and uh, and and this is all literature that uh, we are not we're really not aware of you don't have really the uh, um access easy access to it um, at, at least to read. If you want to go through this uh, at, at archive.org, 
Yep. You have almost all these commentaries in Latin digitized and, and available for, for the regular you know, public to go through them. The thing is, you need to know Latin to go through them. Again, so if you go to Greenville Seminary, you can learn Latin and then read this guy. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> now, there are, there, there are two works... Uh, that are that are really really important when it comes to understand Rollock's mind, mm-hmm. uh, and the first one is is the the classic treatise of God's effectual calling, it was first published in Latin in 1597, and the other one uh, published one year before was his uh, question and answers regarding uh, the uh, the I think it's God's covenant of men or 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 God's covenant. That was published in 1596. This last works like a catechism, but different from well, different from catechisms that we know, like the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the shorter and larger catechism produced by the Assembly, mm-hmm. uh, which tend to be more dogmatic in their approach, go into every law side of dogmatics. Um, Rollock thought about creating a catechism on the covenant. Really? Yeah. So you have you have him, you know, dealing with uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's something around sixty questions, mm-hmm. uh, questions and answers, where he not only uh, develops the doctrine of the covenant, um, both covenant of grace and works, he gives you text proofs to know where he's coming from, and he also makes a link between covenant and sacrament um, in this in this very short treatise. This this this. Uh, catechism was translated by Dr. Uh, Aaron Dellinger. I think is the, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is the only man now uh, that is dealing with, uh, and continues to deal with Rollock. Mm. Um, he has recently also published in 2013 uh, a shorter section on the covenant that is in that is attached to Rollock's commentary to Romans in chapter eight. So it, it, this is really a beautiful thing that he does as he's commenting. Chapter 8 of Romans, he stops for his readers and he gives this brief treatise on what the covenant is and what a sacrament is. It's really amazing. So recently in 2013, uh, Dr. Dallinger translated those. Uh, it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was published in the Reformation and Revival um, journal. And the first one, the Catechism, was published in the Mid-America uh, journal, theological journal. Yep. So they are they are easy to get and uh, and really worth to read, especially the the the, the catechism where you can really uh, get the 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 meat of what Rollick thought on the covenant. Yep. Now you you talk about the covenant and we we did some of his history, so we kind of know his background. I mean, he had some differences, of course, with the the Presbyterian understanding of government. It appears, um, and that's a very layman's way of, of stating that. Uh, but when when we're talking about the covenant. And I, I warned you off air that I'd probably do this. Um, <laughs> different listeners out there are going to hear the word covenant and they're going to think, okay, what are we talking about? And so, what from what perspective? I mean, what when he says covenant, when you say covenant, what are we talking about? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. In modern terms, uh, we tend to talk about covenant more in terms of a, of a relationship. Yep. Uh, and and this is wonderful that there's nothing to to detract from it. Yes, uh, a covenant is this specific relationship. That God Himself establishes with His people—that's mm, that's mm-hmm. a unique relationship and a relationship that has several characteristics. Now, when we come to Rollock writing at the end of the 16th century in Scotland, something really interesting comes yep. to our attention. Um, covenanting seems to be part of Scottish culture and society. 
So you can trace uh, covenants being made uh, in the in the 14th century in Scotland. Now Robert de Bruce, for example, covenanted with uh, with his friends to uh, to uphold you know the 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 crown of, of Scotland and and to protect Scotland something like that and uh, as they are doing that they partake of the supper mm. they do that in a in ecclesial they do that in a chapel they make this this kind of covenant in a chapel and they partake of the Lord's supper and again they make this bond this agreement of uh, of protecting Scotland and 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 particularly the man that was with him protecting him as the king Robert de Bruce now. Uh, as, again, as, as we investigate Scottish history mm. as a whole, you see that, again, this, this part of covenanting, bonding, uh, is really part of, of Scottish history and Scottish society. And again, this is all in, in, in part of Rollock's world as, as he begins to deal with covenant theology in a theological perspective, in a yep. biblical perspective. So, um, of course, one, espe- one specific aspect of Rollock's own definition of covenant is not going to be that relational, but it's going to be more contractual. Mm. And this is how, how he, he translates, or uh, this is how he, uh, he puts together uh, his definition in the catechism. This is what he says. The very first question uh, tries to define what exactly is Rollock talking about when he talks about covenant. And the question is, what is the covenant of God established with man? And he himself answers, it is that by which God promises man something of good under some certain condition, and man, moreover, accepts that condition. Mm-hmm. Now, you can already see that there is a contractual flavor right. to, to his own definition. And one of the, the, the interesting characteristics, again, of uh, another one, is, is this idea of condition, conditioning the covenant. This is something Rollick is going to bring uh, both in the covenant of works and in the covenant of grace. As a cov- as a, uh, a covenant theologian, Rollock uh, uh, believed in this two um, in the existence of mm-hmm. these two covenants. Um, in spite of the controversies, even particularly the covenant of works, we still have today um, uh, several scholars deny mm. the the existence of such covenant and and consider that an invention of uh, of the Westminster Assembly, for example. Well, Rollock. Was not part of the assembly. Actually, it was you know some good sixty or a little bit over years before the assembly yep. took place, and he is the one that uh, that is going to describe and to systematize the covenant works with uh, in his own time with with more details, specificity, and um, and 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 systematically as possible as nobody has ever did, has ever done before him. It's hard to imagine that his work wouldn't have had some influence. It's just hard to imagine, maybe, uh, but it's hard to imagine, at least for me, uh, to imagine that that he didn't have some influence given his his station in life on what developed and, and comes right out, and we read out of the Westminster Confession. I'm sure there were some variances, no doubt, but. Um, but as the topic of the conference is the law of God, and, and this is a question we did not discuss up front, so um, forgive me for That's right. dropping this on you at the last second. What is the relationship between him, uh, Robert Rollick, his work, the Covenant of Works, which is the title of your paper? Uh, well, I, I hate using that phrase. Paper, That's okay. But your lecture topic um, and the law. Mm. 
is there a direct connection? We, we've put it in the brochure as uh, under the topic, the yeah, law of God. The law of God, yeah. So what is the – so I think anybody reading this, first they don't know who Robert Rollick is, now they know a little more than mm-hmm. they did before. And they see the covenant of works, and they're going, okay, what does that have to do with the law? Yeah, that, that, that's a – and actually you have there a beautiful connection. Um, okay, Rollick, Rollick whole worldview is covenantal. So he is going to offer you the following way to see the world. There are two covenants, and everybody is either under one of those or the other. There's only two ways to look at the world for Rollock. Either you are under the covenant of works, or you are under the covenant of grace. Mm. Now, as we deal with uh, uh, with uh, all the nature or the characteristics of the covenant... Um, God, uh, Rollock will look at Revelation and Scripture, again, with covenantal eyes. So, uh, for example, it is it is a very, very well established in Rollock, the whole idea of progressive revelation. You know, it, and, and again, it was really a surprise for me because uh, coming to seminary in 2006, the whole idea of progressive revelation seemed to be a, a great insight coming from Gerhardus Voss, you know, and passing on sure. from the Princeton tradition. But truth is, the whole idea of, of progressive revelation was already there in the church, in the, in, in the history of church theology, sure. since the patristics. And, uh, and Rollock um, is really big on that. Mm. Um, and and in, in this sense, what is then the law of God? What is the word of God for Rollock? It's the book of the covenant. Mm. So if you are under one of these covenants, you are bound to this book regardless of what you think of it. You may not accept it. You may despise it. You may love it. You're bound to it. You're bound to it for life or you're bound to it for death. So uh, the law of God, uh, and, 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 and Rollock calls scripture uh, the viva vox day or the lively voice of God. He, uh, as, as we are in this covenantal agreement with God, every time one comes to scripture, it is the mm. lively voice of God one is listening as they read uh, uh, the pages of, of the Word of God and of the law. And therefore, um, in this perspective, as one, for example, one who is a member of the covenant of grace, as he is a member of this covenant, God's word for the ones that are under this covenant are you know, something that is extremely important, extremely relevant. Um, specifically, when we comes, when you come to deal with the with the the specificities, specificities of the agreement mm-hmm. in the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. Now, going to the covenant of works, the same thing, the same truth still stands. What God has revealed to Adam, and 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 all this this ideal of progressive revelation here comes into play. What has been revealed to Adam has been capped and expended, right. and is now part of of the new covenant. Now, if you're under the covenant of works. What has been revealed to Adam and given to Adam as uh, as the lively voice of God and the requirements of God continues to stand for yourself. Mm. So uh, this is a really a beautiful covenantal worldview. Yep. And um, it is a wonderful worldview that we should also develop. And um, as we deal with uh, with the world, as we deal with our kids, as, as ministers deal with their church, to remember that that uh, there's only two kind of people: either you are under the covenant works. Or you're under the covenant of grace, and uh, and particularly for those under the covenant works, that's really alarming. That yeah. should be that should be really alarming to them.
yep. and all the in, the ins and outs of that the conference I'm, I'm sure is going to deal with. And we've got different subjects like antinomianism and don't ask now what that means. I know what that means. Look it up. <laughs> but if come to the conference and you can find out in a fuller way what that is, um, where Dr. Mark Jones is going to unpack that. But it's really interesting. And you look back in time um, in God's providential working through history um, as he tells his story. Um, I like to think of it that way. I don't know if that's really the etymology of it, but I like to think of history as God's story, his story of his workings and involving involvement with man. He pulls out this man, Robert Rollick, and uses him in some in his little corner of the world, wherever he is, um, there in Scotland, to influence a generation, influence a people in a direction uh, that God chose to use in His own providence, and and so much we can learn from these men. You know, not, we're not going to agree with everything they say, right? I mean, there's yeah. no, we're not, you know, I'm sure you came across things you're like, ah, I'm not so sure. But it, be that as it may, um, there's so much we can agree with and, and filter through and um, and see how it all connects to the, some of the things that we stand so firmly on today. We, we've talked about the Westminster Assembly some 60 years removed from his life, but not removed from his influence. And so now at the conference, we're going we're gonna to look deeper into his life. So this discussion we've had with... Um, Pastor Macedo, I failed to say that up front, and, and I made a big note on my paper here. Don't forget this piece. He also pastors down, and maybe you picked up on this as you were listening. Um, he also pastors down in um, Brazil, and I phonetically spelled the city, and it's Terrazina. Did I do that right? That is I'll correct. I brought that. So he pastors in a church in uh, Terrazina, Brazil, um, and he's here in the States for a season to do some work, and he's been teaching also introduction to homiletics class. So these young pastor-to-be guys, preacher-to-be guys, got the uh, full baptism in the last couple of weeks. And so he's been working actively here and helping us. But again, he's going to be speaking at the conference. And so I would recommend, and I'm going to ask Breno, to, if you have an, any suggestions for the listeners, you know, they've never heard this guy before. Maybe they've heard of him before but didn't know much, and now they're really more, they're more interested in them before. Any resources people can go to to maybe learn about his life, his history, his influences, that kind of thing? Yes, yes. Um, um, there is one very good resource that is very concise, and but unfortunately, uh, it, it's not easy to get unless you have and a it's library. It's in Latin. No, I'm kidding. It's not <laughs> but it's the, it's the 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 dictionary of Scottish history and theology. Mm. Uh, if you try to get this this volume today, I think it's like three hundred dollars on Amazon. So, you, you, it's something you don't want to do. Put it on your wish list. Yeah, put it on. Post your wish it list. on Facebook, and maybe somebody will buy it for you. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's a it's a volume out of print. I think a lot of people has been trying to get uh, logos to uh, to put it in digital oh, really? form. That it would be wonderful. Uh, I myself have requested that uh, two years ago, uh, and and I, I kept doing that every month. But uh, having said that, uh, if you have a library, a <laughs> seminary library close to you. A look at the Robert Rollick entry there, yep. um, and uh, it, it's short, concise, and it's going to give you like the the most fundamental things you really want to know about Rollick's life and his theology. Mm. It's it's right there. Now, if you want something more accessible, I would go back to Andrews Woolsey introduction to Robert Rollick's mm. uh, republication uh, the, the works, not not the republication of the covenant <laughs> of the covenant works, uh, the republication the. The, the works republished by uh, Reformation Heritage Books. Volume 1 uh, has this Woosey, um introduction to Rollock. And there, again, you're going to have both uh, a good introduction to his life mm. and also to his works, to his ideas, 
that you certainly want to want to check that out. Um, yeah, basically getting those two volumes uh, is going to get you acquainted with Rollock's life, Rollock's theology, and Rollock's uh, preaching abilities. Hmm. Since the very first volume are a, a collection of, of several of his sermons. Actually, there's a series of sermons on on uh, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ that is, it's it's worth the price of the whole volume, the, okay. the whole set. So it's really worth getting if you want to learn more about him and and of what he produced and what he developed. And of course, uh, the Treatise of God's Effectual Calling is also part of Volume 1. It, it's right there. Fantastic. And don't forget, Google is your friend. Well, yeah. If you want to get all this for free, archive.org. Yep. All the volumes are right Google there. Google it. And, if, and as he's already told you, he's warned you up front now. If you don't know Latin, you might have a little bit of a problem in some of those areas, but uh, not the ones that he mentioned prior to what I just said. So <laughs> pay attention to these things. I'm going to make sure I include some of these resources on the notes for this particular broadcast so that there'll be links there so you don't have to like hunt all over the Internet. I'll do all that work for you. And you just have to click on them, and you'll be brought to those those resources directly. So um, if you're driving down the road right now and there's no way for you to write it down, uh, you don't have to worry about it. Don't do that when you're driving. My wife was, well, never mind. We won't go there. <laughs> uh, Brenna, it's been great, though. I think, you know, it, it, it was. it's just enough, you mm-hmm. know, as we talked about this. And, and of course, you're going to deal with it in a full, much fuller way. Um, and it looks like you're slated for Thursday after uh, Thursday morning um, to speak, unless the schedule changes. It looks like you're set up there. So those who are coming to the conference, who have already signed up for the conference, you can look forward to a fuller treatment of Robert Rollick, his influence, and especially as it pertains to the, the theological um, area of the Covenant of Works. You can look forward to that on Thursday morning um, uh, there at the conference on um, March 12th. So it's been great, brother, to talk with you about this. I know you can tell you're passionate about this, and um, that's great. We need more passion in the church about these men that are, as as we've discovered, they they mm. tend to get forgotten mm, for whatever true. reason. And um, but thank thankful to your work and labors, as well as RHB and others that have tried to get these guys back in the in front of us at least to consider and and to learn from. Uh, as we live here in the 21st century. So yeah. thank you for and for being on, of course, the program and taking your time. No, oh, thank you. Thank that. you for having me. I, it yeah. was, was a privilege for me. Absolutely. Uh, what's coming up on the program? I get, about this time, every this, every broadcast I get to this point, I'm always going, I don't know how to say what I'm going to say. So I'm just going to say this. Go to the website, confessingourhope.com. Look at the link that says broadcast coming up. And it will tell you the information. It's always changing because of scheduling and issues. So just go there. That's the the safest place, usually, um, if I'm being faithful to update it as often as I should be. And don't forget about the faith and practice segments. We um, Every month, we uh, take questions from the listeners. Uh, any question, we you send it in. Go to the website. The, the, the form is there. Fill it out. Send in your question. Dr. Piper, the president of Greenville Seminary. We'll review them. He will look them over. He will prepare an answer uh, and sit down with me, and, and we will deal with it on the air. And it's been a very well-received uh, addition uh, to the podcast. And, and so send your questions in. Uh, we, 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 we obviously look at them, um, but just send them in. you got a question, send it in. We will be glad to deal with it. Uh, on the program so and that is in fact the next one's coming up very very soon so look for that any day now but until next time 
when we sit down and talk with somebody it's on the website i promise uh, go on the website look there when we sit down and talk with whoever that is uh, we thank you for listening to this particular edition of confessing our hope the podcast of greenville presbyterian theological seminary and god bless you